Good morning, church. Um, I'll just give you a moment to look up Psalm 7. If you have your Bibles with you. Psalm 7. Chapter 1. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Lord, my God, if I have done this and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord. Vindicate me, Lord according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. My shield is most high, God Most High, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out Fails into, falls into the pits they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing praises of the name of the Lord Most High. Well, good morning, everyone, again. And uh, if you could keep Psalm 7 open that was um, expertly read to us by Karen, thank you. That would be a great help, and I will pray, and we will get underway. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your scriptures, and uh, we thank you for uh, these, the words of Psalm 7 just read to us now, and uh, we don't want to miss the goodness that lies within them. So help us to be attentive uh, and open-hearted. For the sake and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I do want to start by asking the question, how do you typically respond when you've been wronged? A little while ago, we got fined for having our dog off-leash in North Harbour Reserve. We didn't see the sign, at least we didn't take it to heart, because there were lots of other dogs off-leash in North Harbour Reserve. But we happened to be the only ones off-leash at the precise moment when the ranger turned up. 
And uh, the ranger, she gave us a hefty fine. It was one of those wreck your week kind of fines. It was a bigger than speeding fine kind of fine, $334. I'm glad you reacted like that. That's sort of how I reacted. Now, technically, we'd done the wrong thing, fair enough, but it felt unjust. You know, like an initial warning, that would have been fine, would have sufficed. A small fine would have felt reasonable and effective, but $334, it seemed excessive and unreasonable and unjust. We had done the wrong thing, and yet with, with such a large fine, I felt aggrieved. I felt wrong. And I couldn't get revenge because you're dealing with the council, and I couldn't fight it because we had erred technically. So I decided the only way that I could feel better about this, I'm so embarrassed, was to extract more value for money out of the council. So I, I wrote to them right away. I said, you need to prune the trees in the local reserve that are hanging over the road. You need to do it right away. And, and you need to cut the grass in your building site next to my house, which it's got to be harboring ticks, if not snakes. I wanted at least $334 of council-provided garden maintenance because I felt like I had paid for it. Couldn't get out of the fine, couldn't get revenge, so instead I pursued value for money. How bizarre and rather embarrassing way to respond to being slighted. Now today in Psalm 7, in our Living God series, uh, we're, we're seeing how it describes the God who judges, or perhaps even the God who judges justly and it encourages us to respond in an alternative way when we've been wronged it encourages us to pray the words of this psalm which appeal to god for justice and isn't that the point of teaching the psalms or reading the psalms it's that we might pray the psalms for ourselves when we find ourselves in the same position that the psalms depict and it might not even be praying the words of the psalms it might be singing them uh, they are songs after all. So as you listen to the words, as you hear the lyrics, you need to imagine what kind of music might be playing behind them. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great uh, 19th century preacher in London, said this one, Psalm 7, song about God's justice and judgment, has got a lot of bass. It's more muscle than melody as it considers the God who judges. Well, I wonder if you can sing along. And I wonder if you'll be able to pray this psalm whenever you sense that you've been wronged. If you have a look at the inscription there, like the majority of our psalms, it was written by King David. That's about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. This one you'll see, and, and do have a look at the inscription, is a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. So now that that's all cleared up then, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, a Shigeon, uh, they sort of think it might mean a meditation or a variable song, one that kind of alternates between comfort and complaint. And we'll see that this song does just that. Uh, you might also remember that King Saul, the, the king before David, and in many ways the enemy of David, was also a Benjamite. And so the scholar's best guess is this Cush fellow was a close relative to King Saul, and he accused David of treason or rebellion against Saul's authority. And Saul might have been tempted to believe, not just because Cush was one of his relatives, but because he was prone to jealousy uh, at David's growing popularity amongst the people. Well, whatever it means, there's a real threat to David. And it's a violent threat to his very life and a genuine injustice. I mean, how would you respond? 
Well, David responds by calling upon God to judge. And so firstly, we need to take to heart that God is the God who judges justly. And he is not the God who sleeps. We're going to see how that works. The psalm begins, verse 1 and 2, with something that's quite common in the psalms, a sort of general appeal to God. It's a plea for refuge and rescue. It's drawn out of fear and faith, a fear of violent threat. Have a look at verse 2. They will tear me apart. They will rip me to pieces. I mean, that sounds worse than an excessive fine, doesn't it? But also, verse 1, faith in the personal covenant faithfulness of God. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. And so it starts in a a fairly kind of familiar way. But by verse 6, David appeals to God to not only rescue him, but also to judge. It's as if he's saying, wake up. I need you to bring justice, not to sleep in. Well, let's read verse 6 together in our Bibles there. Arise, Lord, in your anger, rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Arise, God. Awake, Lord. I need you to to decree justice, and I would like it right now, for the rage of my enemy is right at my feet. The urgency in his voice, the panic rising, does not mean that his response is wayward like ours so often is. It's square on the mark because the scriptures reveal that God is one who judges justly. It actually is one of the unifying threads right through Scripture. And it's entirely incorrect to see in the Old Testament a God of judgment and in the New Testament a God of love. Because he is God, he is consistent and unchanging within himself. He's equally loving in the Old Testament and he is equally just and judging in the New Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, it's where we discover that God has appointed Jesus to be judge. And the New Testament describes his judgment in equally vivid ways. And so you have to say that consistently, God is the God who judges. Now, I know even in saying that word, you can, you can feel the sensitivity in the air. Uh, it's about the worst thing you can do to someone in our culture is to judge them. I mean, we resist it, we resent it. It's almost a catch cry of the age. Don't judge me. Modern people hate being judged by other modern people. And so um, because you're a congregation that is really prone to both the love and the wearing of tattoos, uh, it's not uncommon, is it, to see... That's a joke, by the way. Good to see you're alive. Show me your tattoo later. Uh, It's not uncommon to see people with tattoos that express it with the motto, only God can judge me. Okay, That's the regulation tattoo. I I just want to say, though, if you're going to get a tattoo, just make sure that the spelling is correct because otherwise only God will juge me, just doesn't make sense, does it? And then even if you get the spelling right, just get the script nice and clear, because you don't want to say only God can fudge me, because that doesn't make sense either. Only God. (laughs) Honestly, just get it right. Um, But that sentiment is true, isn't it? Only God can judge me. We resist the thought that another person might pronounce judgment upon us. I'm very sensitive to that. Only God can judge me, except we don't even really want him to do that. Truth be told, we all know that uh, in a court of law, an actual judge can judge us. And that even as uh, grown men and women, if we're naughty, our mothers might judge us still. And if you've ever been wronged, you definitely want there to be judgment. You want justice. You want that wrong to be 
righted or at the very least acknowledged. You don't want ills, transgressions, crimes and sins swept under the carpet if they're ills, transgressions, crimes and sins committed against you. So we do resist it and resent it, but we also rightly desire judgment when it's in our favour. And it's in that sense that David says, yes, Lord, judge the peoples. Have a look and read with me from verse 8. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure, you, the righteous God, who probes minds and hearts. <laughs> it's as if he says, judge them all. Vindicate me, end the wicked, secure the righteous. You are upright, God. You test and probe the hearts and minds of people. So execute your justice. Stop sleeping in. Or at least looking like you're sleeping in. Get onto this work of judgment. And in the next section, we discover how he does that. And it is, it's surprising. It really is. It's firstly surprising because David, with some kind of heavy bass lines undergirding his song, depicts God doing this actively and expertly and also quite violently. And so it says there in verse 10, he saves the upright. Well, I think we're okay with that. Verse 11, he displays his wrath every day. It's getting more uncomfortable, I think. Verses 12 and 13, he is sharpening his sword. He is flexing his bow. He's placing a fiery arrow in its string, ready to strike at the wicked. I mean, I thought my doggy fine was excessive, but I don't want the council ranger to get smoked. Something very uncomfortable, isn't there, about this depiction of God's righteous anger and his imminent judgment. And I think we have to ask ourselves, why, why do we dislike that? Is it because there is something wrong about God? Or do I like, dislike this idea because it means that I can't avoid him, can't get around him, I can't manipulate him? Do I dislike it because I actually want God to be more safe and controllable than I want him to be good and upright? He's a God who judges. His judgments are righteous. They are based upon the testing and the probing of our hearts and minds. And as Ray reminded us last week, because God knows all things, everything about us, he's got the data. He's got all available evidence. I wonder if that's why we're less fond of these ideas than David seems to be. Is that why we find ourselves just balking at singing along with him? Then there's another surprising twist. We've just heard David describe God's justice as though he were a commando, skilled warrior, such that God's judgment seems swift and also very active. But as the psalm moves from verse 13 to 14, it, it turns from describing God's judgment as active to rather quite passive. Uh, in verse 14, have a look. The one who conceives trouble seems to find disillusionment. Verse 15, the one who digs a pit with sinister intentions is the fellow who falls into it himself. Kind of a comical picture. Verse 16, the violence they plan for others fall upon themselves. So it seems like God's judgment can almost be passive as well as active. Or at least the plans for evil, trouble, violence so often seem to backfire against the wicked. And David is seeing within that pattern the, the justice of God playing itself out. 
So God is a God who judges. He judges justly because he tests the hearts and the minds of people. He judges actively and expertly like a skilled soldier. And he also judges passively, at least it appears that way to us, letting the wicked become ensnared in their own evil. You see, the question I have is, is that good news? Am I as positive about all that as David seems to be? Am I as confident that God will vindicate me as David seemed to have been about himself? Or do I think that I might find myself numbered amongst the wicked if God were to test and probe my heart and mind to see whether it matches his holy command so clearly spelt out in Scripture? It's true, isn't it, that we have an odd relationship to the idea of judgment and justice. We want it, but only if it's not directed towards us. We want it when we've been wronged, but we're less sure it's a terrific idea when we're less sure that we're in the right. So we both resist judgment and yet also acknowledge that it's necessary and good. What a nervous combination. So it seems to me that the only way that God's judgment can be good news for sure is if he judges us in Jesus. I mean, justice is a good thing in general, but if it's applied to me in my natural state, if God were to test my mind and my heart across my whole life using all available data, I'm just not sure I wouldn't be a target for his flaming arrows, for breaching his holy ways. I can only be sure that God's judgment is good news for me if he judges me in and through the person of Jesus. The whole psalm, did you notice this? The whole psalm, David said, very confident of his own righteousness, his own rightness, his own innocence. In verses 3 to 5, he's adamant about his own innocence. If there's guilt on my hands, if I repaid my ally with evil, if I have robbed my foe, let God trample my life to the ground. Sounds like all the batters in the under-12s cricket team. You know, they never think they're out. I, I didn't nick it. Flick the pad on the way through. Oh, it's definitely going down leg side. No, for sure I grounded my bat. You know, they never think they're out. Let's send it for review. Take it upstairs. Never think they're out. They're always so confident. You know, I'm far less confident in myself. And I wouldn't be surprised if you were as well. And, and if you're not, maybe you shouldn't be so confident. Have you really lived according to God's standards? One of the things that we need to do when we read the Psalms is not just read them as individual Christians some 3,000 years after they were written, because that's not reading them very thoughtfully. Uh, as Ray put it last week, gee, he's got some great little turns of phrase, doesn't he? We're in a different theological time zone. The original readers hear us singing of these songs. They read them through the eyes of David, the anointed and appointed king and messiah of God's people. He was the song leader for the original hearers. Now, as 21st century Christians, we don't sing them as Old Testament Israelites through the eyes of David. We sing them with Jesus as our song leader. He is our anointed and appointed Messiah and King, the one to whom David only pointed forward. You see, just as the Old Testament promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus, just as the Old Testament prophets' predictions are fulfilled in Jesus, so are the Old Testament praises um, of David fulfilled in Jesus. He is our song leader and we sing these psalms through him and of course for him.
But in our theological time zone, this doesn't just mean that Jesus is the just judge with all the data available to him to enact upright judgment. It also means we can be confident to face that only according to Jesus' integrity. Only if I am judged through him, somehow caught up in his innocence and his integrity. When David says confidently in verse 8, vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity, I must say I don't share his confidence in my own righteousness and integrity. But I do have confidence in Jesus' righteousness and integrity, so I want to be represented by that. When verse 11 declares that God is a righteous judge who saves the upright in heart and displays his wrath every day, the only person that I could possibly think of who ought to be saved rather than experience that wrath or anger is Jesus, the only perfect human who ever lived, according to all the available data. And so this psalm can only be good news for me, it seems, if I can be somehow caught up in his righteousness and represented by his integrity and his uprightness. It's only good news for me if I'm judged in Jesus as well as by him. And it turns out that that is exactly how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, works, isn't it? Truth of the matter is that God has already brought a judgment upon the wicked, even upon my own personal wickedness. But rather than lining up his flaming arrows on me, as it were, he flung them down upon his own son, beautiful son, a part of himself, when the Lord Jesus was killed on a Roman cross in my place for my wickedness, dealing with it with justice some 2,000 years ago as a matter of history as well as theology. He's not swept it under the carpet. He's not given an unduly excessive fine. He gave it exactly what it deserved, and he has dealt with it definitively on the cross, executing his wrath upon my evil as his perfect son suffered at the hands of his human executioners. And so that requires me to not trust in myself, my own self-righteousness, really, my moral performance, my community service, my noteworthy parenting, whatever it might be that I might otherwise trust in. It requires me to not rely on to myself but to repent or relent, I think, is the word that verse 12 uses. That is to turn back to God, away from myself, trusting in the work that Jesus has done of absorbing the wrath of God on my behalf. And I do want to say, whether you're in the building or watching along online, friends, if you haven't done that, that is the task that is before you this very day. Cannot put it off. Unfortunately, manly residents are naturally not good at this, are we? One of our local residents, who's also a journalist for the Herald, wrote two weeks ago, <laughs> you'll enjoy this, the Lower Northern Beaches is Sydney's spiritual home of the born aloud, by which he means the entitled and the privileged, those not naturally given to turning away from ourselves and our own abilities and allowances and humbly turning back to God in repentance and faith. Now, sharpened swords and flaming arrows, they're obviously metaphors, right? They're pictures pointing towards the righteous anger and upright wrath of God upon evildoers and evil itself. I don't expect God to use literal swords and bows and arrows, but just because they're metaphors uh, doesn't mean they're caricatures, cartoons. 
doesn't mean that God's righteous judgment will not be awful for those who have not turned back to him. And so, of course, I understand this is not the easiest message to digest, especially for residents of the lower northern beaches who are not naturals. Certainly not the easiest message to tell. But alongside the love and the mercy of a compassionate God, the justice and judgment of God is amongst the most important of messages to hear. And so if you haven't turned back to him, can I respectfully suggest that is a pressing task that lies before you this very day. Now, if you have turned back to him, no longer trusting in your own self-righteousness, moral performance, community spirit, excellent parenting, wishful thinking, whatever it is, but you trust in Jesus' righteousness and integrity and his moral performance, and you further trust that the judgment he endured absorbs the wrath that is rightfully yours. Many things this means for us, but three for today. Firstly, continue to turn from evil. Boy, it would be weird, wouldn't it, having been spared the judgment upon our evil to go back to it. So turn from evil, repent of it, confess it before God and others. Perhaps you're an angry person. Do you battle with self-control? Maybe for you it's not those sort of flashpoints of anger. Uh, maybe it's controlling that kind of forked tongue of yours where it's really difficult to, to stop saying that unnecessarily mean thing. Maybe you just delight in gossip. Maybe you flirt with drunkenness. Maybe you flirt with another person you shouldn't be. And I'm just saying what this means for us is we should turn from that. Confessing it in the knowledge that God will remember our sin no more for there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That a pardoned sin and a clean slate and clean conscience before God awaits. Secondly, I think this um, behoves us to pursue righteousness with great humility, which is just the flip side of the above, isn't it? You, you repent of the bitterness that comes with not getting what you hoped for as you've gotten older in life, and you pursue with a soft heart what remains, and you remain open to the possibility of God, what God will do in your life. You know, you, you repent of your cutting words and you pursue gentleness you repent of your wayward eye and you delight again in the husband or wife of your youth whatever it might be and the thing is most of us we know what it might be and then thirdly and lastly and we'll finish with this whenever you are wronged or even you're a repentant wrongdoer you join in this song alongside david with jesus as your song leader with all its trembling muscular bass lines That'll free you up from seeking revenge. It'll free you up from feeling like you've got to make everything right in this life. It'll free you up from embarrassing, bizarre, pursuing value for money, or whatever it is that you feel you need to do in order to make things right. This psalm not only guides us and our response when we've been wronged, of course, it guides us and our, our response when we've been wrongdoer. It's not just a song for when we need justice. It's also a song for when our wrongdoing has been judged justly in Jesus. Friends, God is awake. He is an upright judge. He has judged us in Jesus. And that really is worth singing about. Well, before we do that, let's pray together. I'll give you a moment just to quiet your heart, and then I'll lead us in a closing prayer.
Well, dear Heavenly Father, we recognise you as an upright judge uh, who has entrusted judgment to your perfect and wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we praise you for that and we praise you for him. And we recognise that we have failed to live according to your ways and so we are sorry for that and repent of it. We turn from it. Pray for any uh, friends here today who have not yet made that life-changing U-turn away from trusting in themselves to trusting in the Lord Jesus. So we pray that you might put that upon their hearts. And then for brothers and sisters who have done that, we ask that you would help us on a daily basis to, to turn from our evil and to pursue righteousness with great humility because we don't want to go back to it, our former ways. And Lord, we are so grateful that you judge not only justly, but that you have ju judged our wrongdoing in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and in whose name we are about to sing. Amen.